Welcome to Reimagining Liberty, a show about the emancipatory and cosmopolitan case for radical social, political, and economic freedom. I'm Aaron Ross Powell. We talk a lot about liberalism on this show, but to date haven't done an episode on just what liberalism is. So it is my pleasure to have Chandran Kukathas join me today to fix that. He is Dean of the School of Social Sciences and Lee Kong Chen Chair Professor of Political Science at Singapore Management University. He's also the author of many books, including the classic The Liberal Archipelago and his most recent Immigration and Freedom. We set out the basic principles of liberalism, explore the nuances and complicated application of them, and dig into critiques that have been raised by non-liberal thinkers. Let me very briefly mention that Reimagining Liberty is a listener-supported show. If you enjoy these discussions and want to get early access to new episodes, you can become a supporter by heading to reimaginingliberty.com. With that, let's turn to my conversation with Chandran Kukathas. What is liberalism? So that's sort of straightforward question simply because uh, obviously there are many different views about what this is. There's uh, and, and there are different kinds of answers. There are historical answers, there are philosophical answers, and I would say there are political answers. So someone who wants to give you uh, an historical answer, for example, would probably try to recount the history of a way of thinking about the world um, that arises in the West somewhere around the 19th century. If you actually look at the term, maybe a little bit earlier, if you look at the at the sentiment, usually people will refer to the uh, uh, the Spanish political movement, sometimes it's called the, the liberales, who were essentially anti-clerical and anti-aristocratic. Um, and so they were constitutionalists who wanted to, to limit state power. If you wanted to look at it um, philosophically, you might try to find some kinds of uh, uh, principles which more or less say we live in a world in which people worship different gods, they have different ideas about what is the the right way to live, and liberals are the ones who want to say, look, let's try to find some way of uh, compromising so that we live and let live. That's essentially the, the philosophical core of, uh, of liberalism. And as the, the word itself suggests, liberty lies at the heart of it to the extent that live and let live means leaving people free to, to live in the way that they might choose uh, while you tolerate the the different ways that you find, even though you disagree with them or even find them, uh, uh, you know, very very difficult to accept. There's no toleration unless you're tolerating someone you so or something that you don't really that you don't really like. But uh, there's also a kind of ethical dimension to this because. Uh, while on the one hand, liberalism philosophically looks like is a view that says what we do is we tolerate different philosophical and ethical views, um, there's a question about whether this itself embodies a kind of ethical view which comes with its own 
baggage, its own kind of account of a way of life. And and I think there's a lot to this because as much as liberals want to say, live and let live, um, let's tolerate difference, let's try to get along with one another, accepting different religious commitments, different ethical views. At some point, taking that attitude is going to give you a particular kind of ethical outlook. If you have this view, you're probably more likely to say, well, so that means if you want to tolerate abortion, for example, or practice abortion, um, we will tolerate this because you have a different ethical view. But at what point do you say, well, your difference of ethical view is simply beyond the pale? Someone who's a very, very strong liberal is going to say, well, you know, um, that level of tolerance goes very, very deep. But then how deep? If you get to the point, which many liberals do nowadays, where you say, well, no, that's not okay. We don't think slavery is okay. We don't think racism is okay. We don't think um, disrespect for people with uh, different uh, views about gender is not okay. Well, once you do that, um, you may think of yourself as a liberal, but you're also departing from the, the basic principle of tolerance on the grounds that uh, certain things are beyond the pale, and liberals will have different views about this than, say, conservatives might or socialists might or people from different religious sensibilities might. So very quickly, you're going to get into this into this morass of different views about liberalism. So that's why I say that you know it's not a straightforward uh, term. Uh, so every account of liberalism is itself, in a way, a kind of uh, philosophical defense of a substantive view, albeit one that is looking for a way of trying to accommodate difference. As you were saying that, it seems like there's a parallel to the way that people talk about free speech and liberal speech norms as well, which is, on the one hand, you can you can say, look, we have a liberal society or we have liberal speech norms because we are tolerating all of this diversity and difference. So if you want to live your life in a certain way, no one's stopping you unless unless that certain way involves, you know, stealing from people or punching them in the nose all the time or something like that. But within limits, we're not going to stop you um, in the same way that we can say, look, no one is no one is actively preventing you from speaking. But a lot of people who seem to be uncomfortable with liberalism say that's not really that's not really the whole story, right? Because in in free speech, I might technically have the right to speak, but if I have been excluded from all of the various platforms or my audience has been taken away, then I have free speech kind of in name only because my speech is not reaching anyone. I don't have a community to talk to. And there seems to be a similar objection to liberalism in the sense that it's one thing to say we're going to tolerate your lifestyle, but if the society around you doesn't have like a sufficient critical mass of people who want to say share your lifestyle, then you can't – if you're the the only member of your religious faith in 
the particular town and everyone else tolerates religious faith but isn't supportive of it, has no desire in following it, then it makes it awfully hard for you to practice. And and so does does liberalism is it kind of sneaking in a an exclusion of diversity by way of basically saying we're going to leave you alone but the society is not in any way going to necessarily support the kind of life that you want to lead um i think that is i think that is the case especially if you think about the case as, as you've described where you really are a very isolated minority because even if everybody around you is as open-minded as possible and res as respectful as possible, you're going to feel isolated. Now, I think there is no political or moral, ethical, uh, social outlook that's going to be um, more hospitable, if hospitable at all, to you if you're in that circumstance. If you're the only Christian in a vast sea of Hindus or Muslims or Jews, you're going to feel very isolated, even if they're as nice as possible, because everything around them is going to, around you is going to be different. Um, so you know the most you can really hope for is that they will just leave you alone. Uh, the chances are there will be someone around there. Who will say about you? Well, you know that guy's a Christian, or you know, whatever it is that you uh, happen to be. There's no way that you will not feel it. So I don't think that would be um, a particularly um, useful case to examine. The, the the I think it would be more useful to think about cases where, okay, you do have a substantial enough minority surrounded by. Uh, People who are different, that you know, um, you can in fact you know, live your life without feeling completely surrounded. But nonetheless, you're in a minority. Okay, so the the uh, the norms of the wider society are not uh, as much in your favor as they are within your particular community. Then, what opportunity do you have to to have a voice to practice your faith? To not practice any faith—that's uh, where I think, you know, the um, uh, the the issue becomes more relevant. And I think in in that circumstance, the the attitude of the liberal will be, well, you know, again, live and let live. Um, it's not to say that the person in the minority will find it uh, easy to the extent that you know someone in a minority group wants more. To the extent, let's say, for example, that um, if you're in a Muslim community that's in a society that is predominantly Christian, all of the um, the regalia in ceremonies, all of the um, um, the symbolism that surrounds you is predominantly Christian. It's because of hundreds of years of Christian society growing up there. You may want more than that, but it'll be hard for you to turn around and say to everybody else, you've got to somehow dismantle all of this. I don't think you could say that any more than if you were a Christian in a Muslim society, you could say, look, you know, you've got to 
change the architecture, change the uh, the days of the week, change the holidays because I feel uncomfortable. Um, I think that's simply a part of uh, social reality. We are always in a minority with respect to certain things. Minorities have to find ways of respecting the norms that are there around them. But I think the liberal attitude would be for both parties to actually try to have uh, some respect for the others. Uh, uh, but truth be told, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. It's difficult to do when you're in a minority because you're in a minority. It's difficult to do when you're in a majority because uh, being in the majority feels like the natural state of things. Okay, Why should you compromise in some way? Why should you be tolerant? You have um, that power, either informally or formally. So we've been talking about liberalism as the, the word you use is an attitude. So this attitude of live and let live, of respecting diversity um, and, and neutrality to the extent that we can. How does that relate to liberalism as a governing philosophy, as laws, as sets of institutions? And I guess one way to ask this is, imagine we had the enlightened despot ruling society who has absolute authority but sets the laws such that they reinforce liberal norms. Um, is that liberalism versus, say, a democratic, a fully democratic society where all the power is invested in the people, but as is the case in many quote-unquote liberal democracies, there's a lot of illiberalism in the system as well. Like, does liberalism tie us to a particular set of institutions or a particular way of deriving and enforcing laws? I think this is actually really a, a, a very tricky, almost, uh, I would say, a, a subtle question, because I think what it speaks to is the, the liberal attitude to, to power. Uh, on the one hand, I think liberals are very, very wary of power. So, most of liberal political thinking, I think, is aimed at figuring out how to restrain or constrain power. Lots of different ways of doing it. Some of it is uh, constitutionally to find ways of limiting what uh, uh, presidents, legislatures, judiciaries can do, sometimes by dividing power among these, um, but also sometimes trying to divide and limit power socially by restricting the things that people can do to amass power. But the other problem uh, that can also arise is that um, you can, in a system that is very, very much one in which power is constrained constitutionally, separated, divided, and so on, but nonetheless, um, ultimately, is captured, for example, through the workings of a democratic system. You could, as many liberals have recognized, have a democracy that is highly liberal because through uh, fluke or cunning, um, people come into power um, as collectives with the intention of uh, placing restrictions on people's freedom, on 
or restricting people's freedom unequally. That's perfectly possible. You could have you know, governments that are democratically elected, elected uh, that place enormous restraints on the freedoms that people might otherwise have enjoyed, freedoms of speech, freedoms of exchange, um, not only various economic freedoms, but also political freedoms. Um, equally, it's quite possible that you have um, a dictator, say at the extreme, who has attitudes that are very liberal. I mean, this is not a perfect analysis or analogy, but let's say you had a, uh, a Marcus Aurelius whose interest is in governing well, or an Ashoka, um, in, you know, the empire emperor of India. Uh, now, these people were not by any means uh, liberals, but uh, on the other hand, they had a certain attitude to, uh, to government, to rule that sort could rule. Uh, you could also have someone coming to power by democratic means um, who wishes to rule in a completely illiberal way. So I, I don't think for liberals there's an easy answer to this particular conundrum. You know, how do you um, preserve liberal values to the extent that these embody an attitude of tolerance and uh, a spirit of live and let live, willingness to ensure freedom of others to live their own lives, speak their own minds, worship as they wish, when um, liberal institutions and mechanisms can bring into prominence people, governments, legislatures, judiciaries that don't share that attitude. How, in an, in an ideal sense, does a liberal society figure out where the limits of live and let live are so we can you know we can stipulate that there are easy cases like if if your living involves murder we're not going to let live in that case but it seems like a lot of the a lot of the backsliding you see in liberalism a lot of the times when people who have claimed liberal values suddenly are expressing illiberal urges are are specifically on that so i was a liberal until liberalism called for accepting transgender identities and that's a bridge too far for me or i was a liberal until my particular religion became a minority and then that's a bridge too far for me and it seems like this is you know there's the murder is an easy case saying i just really don't like redheaded people and that's a bridge too far is is an easy case in the other direction but things get awfully fuzzy in the middle they they do get fuzzy very quickly even with the with the question of murder um, it's not all that clear cut uh, just conceptually murder means wrongful killing so to say that everyone accepts that murder is wrong is essentially a tautology of course everyone agrees that murder is wrong that's what murder is. Uh, where it gets difficult is figuring out what counts as murder. Is voluntary euthanasia uh, or assisted suicide murder? Some people would say yes, others would say no. Is abortion murder? Some would say yes, others would say no. Is killing in war murder? Uh, is um, you know is execution for um, for punishment murder? Here, people just differ enormously. No one differs on the question of whether murder is wrong. 
but there's an enormous range of views on what counts as wrongful killing. And so I think this is where um, saying something like, well, I have a liberal attitude is not going to get you very far because it, it's not in itself going to, to settle the question. Now, one response to this might be to say, okay, what we need to do is find the correct answer ethically. Uh, the problem is here, by hypothesis, there is ethical difference. And it's not that the people who are differing ethically, uh, some of them thoughtful and others not. It's actually there are thoughtful people on all sides of this question. So what you have to figure out is, where do you go from there? Um, I don't think that this question is settleable ethically in the sense that there's any hope of a demonstrative uh, solution to this. Of course, everybody will have, you know, holding their own respective views, people who are among the finest minds who hold the same view, who will be able to offer excellent arguments in favor of that view, whether we're talking about abortion or euthanasia, or killing in war, and so on. But none of them are going to persuade the others. So the ultimate solution or answer is going to be a political answer. It's not going to be an ethical one. Um, now, this means that when those issues are settled politically, those who have very, very strong ethical convictions on the subject are many of them going to be distressed, angry, upset, about the about the outcome, uh, because they think there is one correct answer. I think on the whole, the the liberal attitude is going to be: this has to be resolved politically. It cannot be resolved uh, ethically because, by hypothesis, there are different ethical views, and uh, there's only there are only you know uh, a few options when there's ethical difference in this regard. You go your separate ways. Which means you maybe you move apart physically, uh, or you come into you know, conflict to enforce one view over the other. In which case, the side that will win will just be the one that's more powerful. Now that's probably the the reality a lot of the time, but that's hardly an ethically convincing solution. It just means that the stronger party wins. It doesn't mean that the stronger parties right. Uh, I think very few people think that might is right, um, even though they might agree that might will eventually rule. And then the other option is to, to find some sort of compromise, which invariably, or not invariably, but often will involve some kind of fudge because you cannot settle the issue. Uh, to that extent, liberalism is often a philosophy that's looking for fudges. Not very inspiring, I know, but um, you know it has its own kind of rationale to it. It, it accepts that uh, some of these questions cannot be be settled. Um, now, again, the the sociological reality is that um, liberals are not themselves somehow you know neutral, standing above the fray, and you know people have no dog in the fight. Um, they they are human beings. They will have prejudices and so on. Much as they try to put these aside, they will get caught up in the debate. Uh, I think the the attitude or the um, 
the sensibility of a liberal is one that looks for compromise, but in in reality, their own um, views will will creep into the process, um, and ultimately, the 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 compromise that reach that's reached will be more a political compromise than a philosophical one. Um, I would like to think that the liberals are the ones who will accept the the compromise. Um, the illiberal ones are the ones who um, are more convinced of the of the rightness of their their own view and want to to fight on. I'm thinking about this in the context of differing moral theories because it sounds like what what you're effectively saying is we can't. There isn't a standard external to the liberal society by which we can settle these these problems. It's not like there's kind of a, a divine command theory of liberalism that we can point to. So we have to we have to go internal. And and does that mean then that liberalism is at least the way you've articulated is ultimately a we might call like a virtue ethic. And and what I mean by that is that it can't be simply a, a decision-making procedure the way that like utilitarianism or or a deontological theory is like a decision-making procedure that we just apply rules and we get the right answer because the right answer is awfully fuzzy. There's disagreement. Um, the, the procedures can lead us astray as we already talked about. Democracy can lead to profoundly illiberal outcomes. And so instead, what we need is a sufficiently liberally virtuous people such that their kind of motivations, preferences, tastes, attitudes, and so on will motivate them to more liberal answers even when things are fuzzy. So I'm I'm not quite sure what you mean by more liberal answers, whether you mean more liberal in the sense of um, more tolerant of fudges or more liberal in the sense of uh, more substantively uh, liberal, let's say, according to um, some particular society's ethical standards. So, for example, do, do you mean like, say, you know, by, by more liberal a society like the United States or Australia or yeah. Although I recognize that even in these places, you know, there's there's quite a wide variety of uh, of attitudes from conservative to you know uh, very very radical. I guess what I mean is, if we're looking at say the fudges that are made, um, or we're like the you know the impartial spectator observing this society from the outside, we could you and I could look at two different democratic societies and have a sense of one of them is leans more liberal in its attitudes in its system of laws than another that if the fudges had gone in a different direction it would have pushed it in a less liberal direction um that that it seems to be that the governing institutions are instantiating less tolerance than more and so on, but these are all coming from people deciding politically these hard questions, and so it's it's more it's like a kind of gut 
this looks more or this looks less liberal. And again, that's not, there's no bright line test for that, but I think we can kind of, in general, a lot of us can make that assessment. And and so what I'm what I'm wondering is how much of that depends upon a society having the right decision procedures in place for settling differences versus the society having kind of sufficiently liberal values internal to like the people themselves you know so you could have you could have a society that has liberal governing institutions but if a sufficient quantity say of non-liberal people come in or a sufficient quantity of the people's attitudes shift away from tolerance those mechanisms are going to turn towards a liberalism yeah uh, no I, I understand what you're getting at no i i, I think the uh, the outlook of the of the people is extremely important um if the if the attitudes of the people um, are, let's say, inclined to, uh, you know, what in the 18th century would have been called enthusiasm, uh, nowadays we would call fanaticism, then you're not going to get um, the kind of society that liberals would like with all the institutions that you try to set up. Uh, and here, what I mean uh, is no matter what kinds of uh, uh, legal structures or political uh, rules you set up. Uh, I, I'm not going to say institutions because, in a way, um, institutions are just really what's in our heads. It's not uh, an institution is not what's on paper or you know what's written down. An institution exists only when there is uh, a way of thinking, and that way of thinking depends on the the outlook of the of the populace. This is what makes institutions fragile, because the way people think is also in part dependent on the kinds of uh, rules that are there, the extent to which the rules are uh, enforced or transformed, um, or uh, another case, um, disparaged by people who are influential, and you know lots of. Uh, well-known uh, European thinkers reflected upon this. If you want to go to a not very liberal thinker in, in Thomas Hobbes, he recognized that uh, it's one thing to have the laws that he recommended, but he also said the people have to be educated to embrace these, otherwise it's, it's not going to work. Montesquieu says that, uh, of course, the laws should conform to the spirit of the people, but if uh, the laws exist and prevail for a, for a while, the laws themselves will shape what people think, uh, and it is a it is an ongoing two way process. So, a, a liberal society could be undermined by a transformation of people's consciousness, which is brought about by any one of a number of factors, including the laws uh, that are made, the political institutions that are undermined. If people cease to have confidence in the integrity of their institutions, um, this could change their, their attitudes, make them more vulnerable to those who want to tell them that uh, things should be done differently, for example. Doesn't that just seem then to reinforce the the illiberal critique that 
liberalism pretends to neutrality in the sense that it is it says we value diversity and live and let live and everyone can pursue their own conception of the good so long as it's not you know however we want to define it and 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 like rope it off harmful to others pursuing their conception of the good but everything you just said was sounds like but we also need to indoctrinate you into a set of our particular conception of a set of virtues necessary for this thing. Yeah, um, there there is something t to that. Um, I wouldn't want to go so far as to say that liberalism um, promises neutrality, because I think it it can't. Maybe the most it can say is that. It strives towards uh, neutrality, neutrality in the sense of having uh, an open and capacious uh, outlook, willing to listen to, to all points of views, especially those that uh, are in the minority, those that are uh, rejected by others, those that are struggling to you know, find their, their way in the world. But it cannot promise neutrality because any set of institutions, any set of rules, by the very nature of uh, rules and institutions, will issue in uh, an outcome. It will mean that a decision will be taken. So it cannot be neutral in any stronger sense than that. Some things will be prohibited. Some things will be permitted. There's no way of... Uh, of avoiding this, so it can't be neutral in that way. On the other hand, I think what it does uh, strive for is um, openness to disagreement, openness to challenge, uh, openness to revision, um, so that all of this is constantly reevaluated. What it doesn't or shouldn't try to do is to settle things once and for all. Now, that said, I think there are liberals who think that these questions can be settled and should be settled in a particular way, and that liberalism, in a way, will bring us the, uh, the right answers. Because I think even within liberalism, there are different uh, um, ethical theories different accounts of the, the foundations of, uh, of liberal thinking. Um, among those, for example, who think that toleration is very important, um, there is a view that the limits of toleration are given by justice. Okay? So the question we've got to figure out is, what is just? But now, there are other liberals who say, well, the problem is that what is just or what is justice is itself contested, in which case to say that you know, this is going to settle the limits of, uh, of toleration is itself problematic because it's, it's, it's begging the question of what exactly is right, what is just, uh, where, where those limits are. The reason that we have toleration is that those limits are, are difficult, uh, if not impossible, to settle. Maybe another way of looking at it is to say, okay, even if you think that there is a right answer out there to 
a host of very, very important ethical questions. If you think that, do you think that these questions can be settled quickly and easily? And if you think, no, they can't be settled quickly and easily because they clearly haven't been. Uh, they're going to take some time. They'll need procedures and so on. Um, then what do we do in the meantime? While we're trying to settle these questions, what do we do? Okay, And I think one very good answer to this question is, well, we have, broadly speaking, liberal norms. Are they completely neutral? No, of course not. They recognize that we're still trying to figure out what that correct answer is. And, uh, uh, and given that the... The answers, not, not only are the answers uh, uh, questioned in dispute, um, debated, but the procedures themselves for settling these questions are highly debated. Um, you have to be uh, open not only to the, to the solutions, but also to the methods. Uh, these are all up for grabs. Uh, I mean... It's for this reason, I think, that liberals are sometimes caricatured as people who won't take their own side in a debate because they can see the other side. And there's, there's some truth of it in this. Um, maybe it's also a virtue, but you know, um, at critical moments, you also need to make a decision. Uh, this is why I think when these decisions are made, ultimately, they made politically, which means that the the answers are settled by by power. You know, those who have the capacity to enforce an outcome will do so. I think liberals, like everybody else, just has to accept that. That's just that's just the nature of reality. Uh, I think liberals will step up still um, if they're thinking rightly and say, "Well, okay, so that's settled." But that was settled because you know the more powerful got their way, as they always do. Hooray for us, we were in the powerful side, but that's, you know, that's not what makes us right. I'm reminded of the professor I had in my first year of law school, who, upon discovering that I had a background in philosophy, pointed out that it's great to discuss matters of justice and try to define it, but your client doesn't want to wait for you to settle the matter. Um, and and you just have to convince the judge and move on. But as someone who has spent your career articulating and defending liberalism, what do you see as the most either challenging or interesting critiques of liberalism? I think the most important challenge to liberalism at the at the philosophical level, is the one that says that, um, and you've raised this question already, is that the uh, um, the promise or the aspiration to neutrality is unachievable, uh, and and I th I think the challenge is is right. It's just that I don't think that the um, the alternative is. Uh, going to resolve anything because it gets us back to the starting point where there are different claims about what is right. There's a very famous uh, critique, which is, I think, essentially a critique of liberalism by the philosopher uh, Alistair McIntyre, 
uh, first advanced, I think, in comprehensive form in his book of 1981, uh, After Virtue, which he begins in a very dramatic form when he says, okay, imagine that there's been you know, uh, a catastrophe globally and all the, the libraries have been destroyed and what we're left with is only fragments of books and, you know, whether of scientific knowledge or um, historical knowledge, and we try to piece things together again, but all we've got are these fragments, you know. Uh, it would be very difficult, because, you know, how do you um, understand a scientific theorem uh, or an equation unless you know the full context? And he says... Um, you know, the moral life we live is a bit like that. Um, in his analysis, as a result of um, the work of mostly philosophers in the European tradition in the 17th and 18th centuries, he means Thomas Hobbes and David Hume, um, the attack on um, uh, on a reason-founded uh, ethics was so comprehensive that we now live in a world, a post-enlightenment world, in which all we've got are these fragments of moral knowledge. And, you know, the um, uh, there there is a natural law tradition that's trying to recover this, but, but we can't in the real world because our knowledge has been so fragmented by the, by the attack. It's a very, very powerful um, critique, but, you know, uh, maybe the most powerful critique of liberalism there is, in this case really coming from a Catholic tradition. Uh, I mean, leave aside the fact that I, I, I just don't think it touches anything that's, that's relevant in other you know, ethical traditions because they haven't been subject to this particular history where they're talking about the Islamic or the Hindu or the Chinese or the Japanese. Um, but leave, leave that aside. Um, even if you took this view as um, as presenting a um, uh, an important critique of uh, liberal thinking, where do we go from here? I mean, do we really say, okay, what we need to do is go back to uh, Aristotle and Saint Augustine and Aquinas and reconstruct everything from there to get the the right answer? I think you might come up with a clear philosophical answer. I think you'll struggle to find even broad agreement among all of those within that tradition, but you're really still going to struggle against those who don't buy that particular story. Now, at that point, you know, what do you do? You've still got this ethical diversity. Um, you know, where do you go? If you're going to say, well, we'll enforce the correct view, well, McIntyre himself ends his book by reflecting on the history of St. Benedict, who, um, in a world in which no one accepted his particular interpretations of uh, Christian teaching, um, you know, left for life in, you know, isolated communities. You know, waiting until such time as uh, you know the whole tradition might be recovered. Well, that's not a particularly you know helpful 
kind of diagnosis of uh, the problem if you're looking for an answer of how we live together in, in the modern world. Um, again, leaving aside the fact that we also live in a world in which there are Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and utilitarians and ethical intuitionists, uh, virtue ethicists of different kinds, um, you know, we still have to, um, you know, find a way of coexisting. McIntyre actually says that, you know, what we have in modern politics is, is a kind of civil war by, by other means. Well, in a way that's right. But if you're going to have a civil war, then I think it's better for that war to be civil. Uh, and that's what I think liberalism is advancing or advising. You know, okay, let's find a civil way to engage, given that the alternative is, uh, is, is warfare. Thank you for listening to Reimagining Liberty. If you like the show and want to support it, head to reimaginingliberty.com to learn more. You'll get early access to all my essays, as well as be able to join the Reimagining Liberty Discord community and book club. That's reimaginingliberty.com, or look for the link in the show notes. Talk to you soon.